welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, And to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. 
but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Romans 9 is a, is a difficult chapter for a lot of Christians. How many of you guys have kind of wrestled with the topics in Romans 9, like the topics of election, predestination? Have you guys really wrestled with it? Okay, some of you haven't, so this might really be like, whoa, okay, it's giving me a whole new thing to wrestle with. Um, Romans 9 is a difficult chapter for many Christians, and I would say not so much because it's hard to understand, it's, it's more hard for Christians because of what it says. <laughs> Mark Twain said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts I do understand. And I think that's one thing with Romans 9, is it can be a part that's really tricky. Uh, the doctrine of election that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, not based on any of our works or anything that he foresaw that we do, any goodness that we have, that he chose us before the foundation of the world purely out of mercy, runs so counterintuitive to the way we are. It runs so counter to the way we think, especially as Americans. You know, we tend to think that we're, you know, entirely free and self-determining. Um, it's our whole American ethos. To be told that our salvation really depends on God's choice, not ours, in the final analysis, is shocking. And I, I see the irony of having this on Independence Day. I noticed this about a month ago. I was like, you know, happy Independence Day. Well, maybe not. So it's, it's reality-bending territory, isn't it, Romans 9? When I was in vet school, I was in this small group. It was a college-age bunch of guys together. And uh, one of the guys in the group brought up predestination and election. And he's like, oh, I don't see how that could be biblical. And, and he said, I, I don't know why people would believe that. And so I was like, you know, in my 20s, I'm like, I'll take this one. You know, and then I went on and on with all these passages, all the passages I think of that were that talked about election and predestination, talking about how they all go together. I don't know how long this went on. But I was having a good time, and I'm putting it all together and all that stuff. And then I turned to the guy who asked, and I was like, you good with that? And he looked at me super confused, and he goes, good with that? I feel like I just woke up in Cuba, and you're asking me if I'm good with that? It was so reality-bending that he was like, how can you just say, are you good with that? This, like, turns my whole reality upside down. And some of you guys might feel that way tonight as we're looking at this text. You might feel like you woke up in Cuba. And I don't expect you to immediately, you know, enjoy it quite as much as I do. And I would say, too, take some time with it. Uh, Covenant Grace, we are totally about your freedom to, to debate and discuss and hammer things out. And if you're not exactly where I am on this, there's no pressure of that, okay? If you feel like what I just told you is like you waking up in Cuba, I just say, Look around for a good beach. Maybe there's a Cuban cigar somewhere. And you could kind of think this through and just kind of come across it. I've been at home in this text for like 30 years, okay? I'm Dutch Reformed on my wife's side, if that's possible. And, um, and so this is something that I've really valued for a long time. And this text is, has over and over again given me a great sense of humility. And it's given me a great sense of courage. And it's had a work in my heart that's been very good for me. Of course, I've also struggled with it at times, but it's, it's something that has really meant a lot to me. And I don't expect for every one of you to go, have the same enthusiasm right off the bat about it as I do, okay? 30 years of, of spending time in it. So I just say, sit back, relax, watch me walk through this text, 
and, and see if the Lord shows you the same things that I've seen in, in the text. So why is Romans 9 here? I think this is really important to realize from the beginning. Believe it or not, Paul did not throw Romans 9 in there just to freak you out about divine election. It's not like you were going along in Romans 8 and he's like, now I'm going to mess with him, you know, and I'm going to give him this really heavy text. That's not what's going on here. There's a purpose for Romans 9. Uh, the purpose for Romans 9 is, it's, it, well, you notice it starts with a problem. And the problem it starts with is that Paul's kinsmen, the Jews, are largely rejecting the Messiah. That's how it starts. Take a look at verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself would be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So the problem that begins in Romans 9 is, is that all these Jews are rejecting the Messiah. And Paul's broken over it. You can see that he's totally undone because he's just talked in Romans about how Jesus is the only solution for our sin, right? Everyone's a sinner, both Jew and Gentile. Jesus is the only solution to that sin. And here he's seeing his people saying to this long-awaited Messiah, I don't want him. And so he's all torn up about it, okay? But this could also mean a problem for the rest of us. And here's the problem that Paul sees here, and maybe you didn't see it right off the bat, but the problem that he sees is perhaps God was failing to keep his promise to them. Okay, there's all these people waiting for the Messiah. He comes, they reject him, they don't receive the promise. Perhaps God is failing to keep his promise to Israel. And the reason why that's a big deal is because the stuff that's promised in Romans, especially in Romans 8, are, sound just like the same things he promised to Israel. Take a listen, verse 4. They are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to flesh, the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. God made a lot of those similar promises to us. Did you notice adoption? We were promised adoption. Glory, we were promised glorification. The covenants, it's also promises in Romans. Um, the law and the proper use of the law given to us. Worship given to us. Promises given to us. Even the patriarchs that we would be the, the sons and daughters of Abraham has been given to us in Romans. And of course, the Messiah. And so the issue here is that tons of Jews have rejected the Messiah. They're not going to inherit the promise. And so Paul wants to answer the objection of, has God's promises to Israel failed? And if they failed, how do we know he's going to keep them to us? Have you ever even thought about that? You have these Old Testament people, a whole bunch of them reject him, a whole bunch of them cast off, and you're like, is the same thing going to happen to us? Is his promise going to fail to us? So verse 6, guys, is really the key to this chapter and why it's here. Look at verse 6. It says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's what Romans 9 through 11 is all about, is, is showing that God is still faithful, even though Israel has largely rejected the Messiah. And, and, and the whole point of Romans 9 and 11, uh, 9 through 11, is to make us certain that we will inherit God's promises that were given in Romans and so Romans 9 was written so you can be sure that you're going to get all the promises of Romans 8. If you love the promises of Romans 8, which we do, we spend a ton of time in there. If you love the promises of Romans 8, you need the assurances of Romans 9. And so verse 6 is the key. It is not as though the word of God has failed to Israel. So the central issue in Romans 9 is not so much the doctrine of election or the salvation of Israel, but the faithfulness of God. What Paul's doing is he wants to show you God is faithful even though so many of his old covenant people are not inheriting the promise. 
And, and here's how he answers it. This is where it gets interesting. Paul says that God's promise to Israel hasn't failed because God's promises were not made to all of ethnic Israel. They were made to believing Israel. Take a look, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So not all of ethnic Israel, not all those who are Israelites or Jews are necessarily truly sons of Abraham. Look at verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise says. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also Rebecca, having conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing yet good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God's promise hadn't failed to Israel because those promises were only to those who believed. Those who believed. Not all of the children of Abraham, physical ones, are the children of the promise. He gives an example, right? And the example is, you know, Isaac had two sons. He has Jacob as Esau. They're both physical descendants of Abraham. But God chooses Jacob, not Esau. And so Jacob's the heir of the promise, not Esau. And he's making the comparison of like in his day, there are in Israel both types of people. There are some that are descendants of Abraham and also believed and were children of the promise. And there are some that are descendants of Abraham and didn't believe and aren't children of the promise. So as he's explaining what's going on in this moment. It, it, it doesn't really get us as much as it got them. But it's, it's a shocker, guys, when the Messiah comes and the nation that has been waiting for him rejects him. And so Paul's dealing with all that. And he's saying, well, the ones that are of the promise are the ones that believe. And then he tells us that it's God's election, God's choice, not their racial identity that makes them heirs of the promise. And so when large numbers of Jews in Paul's day were rejecting the Messiah, it wasn't because God's promise was failing. It was because God's election was succeeding. Okay, that's what he's saying in Romans 9. I'll say it again. When these large numbers of Jews in Paul's day are rejecting the Messiah, it isn't because God's promise is failing, but because God's election is succeeding. And we'll see that a couple chapters later in Romans 11 when he says this, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul's saying this is all according to God's plan. And, and this was an important thing for people to realize. Like, this isn't God's promise failing. This isn't, you know, God losing control. This is actually all according to his plan that a huge amount of Gentiles would come in and only a trickle of Jews at that time. And so Paul saw that reason. When Paul saw Jews and Gentiles coming to Christ, what he saw the reason was is that God had chosen those individuals before creation for salvation and was drawing them to himself. Whether it was the, the massive number of Gentiles at that time or the trickle of Jews that were coming in. And I'll read you a couple texts to show you that. Look at verse 25. We'll just drop down there for a sec. He says, as indeed, as it says in Hosea, those who are not my people, speaking of the Gentiles, I will call my people. And her who is not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And so he sees this massive amount of Gentiles. And he goes, this is God. This is God's choice. This is God drawing them. And then with the very small trickle of Jews that were coming to Christ, he says in verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning 
Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel like the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. This is God's prophecy of this. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, okay, that's that choosing, right, and, and drawing, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So in both cases, Paul's, whether Jew and Gentile, he's seen those conversions as being God's electing choice and his drawing them, okay? And, and one of the things you might ask is, what about free will? Were you thinking that? Was anybody thinking that? What about free will? Maybe not. I'll just, yeah, this is what I was thinking. Okay, what about free will? You know, do we have free will? You might be like, hey, you're not saying we don't have free will, do you? Do we have free will? I would say, yeah, we have free will. And you'd be like, okay, phew. I thought you were going to say we didn't. But we do have free will. But guys, in this sense, we're free to choose whatever we want. Okay? Every human's free to choose whatever they want. The thing we know from Scripture, though, is that the problem is, apart from the Holy Spirit, we will never want Jesus. So we have free will in the sense that we can choose whatever we want, but naturally, because of the fall, without the Holy Spirit drawing us, we will never want Jesus. Okay, So if you want to call it free will, you can call it free will. It is free. Nobody's being forced in any way. But we are bound by our desires, right? You know, you can, you're free to choose whatever, but you're only going to choose things you want. And naturally, we don't want Jesus. I'll give you an example. I have free will when it comes to whether or not I take ballet lessons. Okay? totally free. I, sorry for that disturbing analogy. I'm free, right? I could take ballet lessons if I want to or if I don't want to. No one's forcing me. You could say I have free will in that. But the thing is, is that I will never choose to do that. You guys are relieved? You guys were like, wait, is this an announcement of some kind? Okay, no, I will never choose to do that, right? I will never choose to do that. Why? Because I have no desire for that. I have a desire very strongly against that. And so I do have free will to choose to take ballet lessons, but my desires don't fit that, and I'm dead to ballet. Okay, I'm dead to it. Okay, that's the simplest way to put it. In the same way, apart from the Spirit, we would never have chosen Jesus. We were dead to him. Ephesians 2.1 says that, that we're dead to God. And not like mostly dead, like Princess Bride. You know, oh, don't worry, he's just mostly dead. We were totally dead, right? And those of you who came to Christ later in life, you remember being totally dead to God. You remember being totally dead to Christ. No interest in him, no desire for him, until, like it says in Ephesians 2.4, God made us alive to Christ. So our free will, for what it is, is bound to our desires, and our desires are totally dead to God. You know, we spend our lives looking for happiness anywhere but in God. Because we're dead to him. Just like, I'm dead to ballet. It's okay if you're into it. Until we have been made alive by Christ, we're dead to him. And then we have this true freedom. And true freedom really is to choose the one who could give us everlasting happiness. I would call that freedom. You know, when he opened our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. So we're entirely dependent on the Holy Spirit to make us alive by God before we would ever want Jesus. And that's why it says in verse 16 that our salvation ultimately depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We never would have chosen God if he hadn't first chosen us. And we kind of know this, guys. I mean, even if you're like, ah, I don't know if I'll go with you there. You do in this way. We know this because this is the way we tell our testimonies. You know, when you tell your testimony, you don't say something like, you know, I just feel like a more humble guy. And so it was easy for me to humble myself and come to Jesus. Or, you know, I'm kind of a more, I'm a kind of more moral guy. And so... You know, when I heard that was the right thing to do, I did it. We don't tell our testimonies like that, right? 
You guys ever heard a testimony like that? You wouldn't know exactly what was wrong, but you'd be like, that's not the way to do it. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> okay. Or, you know, I'm smart. I check into things. I did a lot of research, you know, like, and, and, and that's how I found the truth. And if other people would, you know, be more like me, they would find him too. We don't say that, right? We say things like, God gave me life. God opened my eyes to believe. I was blind and now I see, right? God pulled me out of spiritual death into spiritual life. That's what we talk in our testimonies because that's what happened. And also, it, the way we pray for people shows that we believe this, right? We don't say stuff like, Lord, I just hope she's humble enough to someday come to you. Like, that's not our prayer. Or, you know, Lord, you know, I'm just, you know, hoping she's going to be moral enough to come to you someday. If you could just put a track out in front of her or something, that'd be great. No, this is the way we pray. Lord, give her faith. Cause her to believe. Open her eyes. Bring her to repentance and faith. You know, save her, right? What we're, we're asking for when we pray for someone's salvation, at least the way I pray, is I'm praying for a takeover. Okay? I'm saying, get them, you know? Like, I'm not saying, you know, hey, could you bring somebody to be like, tell the story better than I did. I'm saying, go in their heart and change them. That's what we see in this text. So God's election, and one other thing about this is God's election or choice of us wasn't based on any foreseen goodness in us. Take a look at verse 11. Though they were, speaking of Jacob and Esau, Though they were not yet born, it had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. If you're a Christian tonight, it's because God chose you for salvation before the foundation of the world, before he created anything, and it wasn't because of any good thing he foresaw in you. It wasn't like he was like, who should I pick? Oh, that guy would be great on my team. It wasn't like that, right? It wasn't because of any goodness he saw in us. It wasn't even because he saw that we would choose him. Because that part, that kind of deal doesn't make sense. Like, God chose me because he knew that I'd choose him. It's like, well, who's doing the choosing and the electing here? Well, it would be you, you know. But this text is, it isn't saying that at all. It's saying that he chose us purely by grace. It's called unconditional election. God chose us by grace. And it makes sense in the Jacob and Esau example because have you guys really checked out Jacob? So Jacob's name means what? Yeah, cheater, deceiver. It's fun on the playground. Hey, can I play? What's your name? Cheater. <laughs> nah, you know, I don't think we're going to have you play with us, right? He's a cheater, and he lived up to it until God's unconditional election came into his life and turned his life totally around. And many of you can go like, oh, yeah, I was a Jacob too. Sometimes I'm still a Jacob, you know? You're like, that's me. And it's, what's really cool is God came into his life, changed his life. Later, he got the name Israel, which is a cool name because it means wrestles with God. You know, you go from being a cheater to like wrestling with God. How, what a cool transformation that is. And that's totally God's choice. And I know one of the hard verses in here is verse uh, 13, where it's shocking. It says, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. That verse kind of sticks out like you're like, you know, when it's red, you're like, you know, you, you get a twitch there. Guys, if we really thought clearly about our sin against God, the first half of that would be the shocking part. Jacob, I've loved. Right? Think about it. You know, Eric, I've loved. Alan, I've loved. Alethea, I've loved. If I don't name your name, it doesn't mean you're not one of the elect. Um, I thought this could get awkward. You're like, why name this me? I'll stop. But guys, think about your name, that he loved you from eternity past, not based on anything you would do, but be just because he loved you. And this isn't like some sort of mechanical choosing. Like he set his affection on you from eternity past. You go, why? I don't know. You don't know either. But he did. And it's his work, and it's his love set on you. 
I love what Spurgeon said about this. He said, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And he says, and I'm sure that if he had not chosen me before I was born, he certainly would not have chosen me afterwards. I love that part. He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me because I could never figure out what the reasons are, right? He chose us based on his own mercy. Now, you might wonder about this, and I think that this, this objection probably really does come up in your mind, which is, how is it fair for God to choose to save some and not others? Anyone feel that one? You probably felt that one. Okay, you guys are with me? Okay, good. I know it's 4th of July, maybe you are at the pool earlier and stuff, we were, so, you know, I get it. I'll just keep going. But you might wonder, how, how is that fair? And what's cool is Paul knew you'd ask that. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it depends not on the human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he will, and he hardens those he will. So Paul answers the question of whether this choosing is fair or not by saying that God actually doesn't owe salvation to anyone. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. That God is completely free to give his mercy and compassion to whoever he wants. And though that sounds hard, you actually agree with that too. I mean, if we think about salvation's by grace, right? And grace means an unmerited gift, something we have no right or claim to. We all believe that, right? We all believe we were saved by God's grace, and God's grace is something that we had no right or claim to. It's something that's a totally free gift. He was either free to give it or not give it, right? But somehow when we get, see a text like this, it starts to bother us. And I think that's what, I think what it's showing us, and it does it to me too, I think it's showing me that on some level, I do believe God owed me rescue. I do believe God owed me salvation. Like I'll say I don't, but then I read a text like this, and I'm like, wait a minute, no, 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 no. And so this text shows us that, you know, probably what we need to be thinking about is we need to remember that grace is completely unearned gift. God was under no obligation to save any of us. All human beings have sinned against him. We've all rebelled against him quite willingly. Um, God had three options. He could save none and he'd be righteous, wouldn't he? The part we have trouble with is some. Three options. He could save none and he'd be, still be just. We're not owed salvation. Um, he could save all. It's called the universalism. One of the more prominent churches in our valley actually is universalist. So he could save none. He could save all. Or he could save some. And we know, actually, scripturally, that the third one's what he did. Is he saved some. And there, there's nothing unrighteous or unjust about him saving some and not all. It's totally within his right. He can have mercy on whom he has mercy. He have compassion on whom he has compassion. The fact that this like pulls at your heart and stuff like that is actually really good, okay? The fact that you have a burden for the lost is really good. I mean, look at the beginning of Romans 9. That's the way it starts. He's, Paul is not comfortable with everything either. He's got this great burden for the lost, but we have to agree that God is just either way. God doesn't owe mercy to anyone, but he gives it to many. And look at the cost that he expended to give it to those whom he gives it. He did it in a very personal way. God the Father gave his own son. We were not obligated to have him give his son. Um, God the Son gave himself on the cross, his body and his life on the cross for us. You might have another objection. You might wonder, well, 
if people are naturally dead to God, like Ephesians 1, uh, 2 talks about, and, and we would have never naturally chosen Christ, how can we still be responsible for our lostness? Have you thought that one before? Like if, if we're already spiritually dead and we don't have any desire for God and we never come unless God had uh, given us spiritual life and drawn us to himself, how can we be responsible for that lostness? Paul actually knew you'd ask that too. Check it out. Verse 19. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Right? That's our question, right? Okay, the answer seems a little harsh. I'm just waiting for you. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Will the one that is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his glory, his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he's called, not from Jews only, but also from Gentiles. Ultimately, guys, the question of if God's sovereign, how can I be responsible for my lostness? It isn't answered here, you know? It started like it was going to be, right? In verse 19, he says, you will say to me, why does he still find fault who can resist his will? And you're like, yeah, it's just, that's exactly my question. And then he says, who are you to talk back to God? So, okay, we're not doing that one, you know? It, it, there doesn't seem to be an answer here. And both are true. God is absolutely sovereign in salvation like a potter is over clay, according to this text. And at the same time, every human being is responsible for their unbelief. So God is completely sovereign and humans are 100% responsible. Both things are true. There's a real tension there. But let me make sure I, I tell you where the tension is. The tension is not between God's sovereignty and your sovereignty, because you don't have sovereignty, okay? And the, the tension is not between God's sovereignty and your free will, because we talked about your free will is not that great anyway. The tension is between God's sovereignty and your responsibility. That's what he's doing here in this text. Is he's saying, you know, how are we still to blame for our lostness if God is completely sovereign? But both are true. God is completely sovereign in salvation, like a potter over clay. And man is completely responsible for his lostness. God does, like the text says, find fault with our lostness. And so there's a real tension here. And there's no answer given here. And I have not found the answer anywhere in here. And I've not found the answer in here. <laughs> you know, I've not found the answer for how God is sovereign and humans are responsible. But these two truths are true. They're both very biblical truths. Um, there's a term for this, and it's called compatibilism. And compatibilism just simply says that the two things are compatible, but in ways we don't know. Okay? So compatibilism means that somehow God is sovereign in salvation, and we are responsible before God, but it doesn't tell us exactly how. And I think it's just that we can't know because we're not God. If you look at verse 20 again where he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? I think the hint there is, is that you wouldn't understand it. You wouldn't get it. And you might say, well, that seems like kind of a cop out. That seems like an easy way out. It's very reasonable that we're going to come to things in issues this big that are mysteries. And my temptation is, as a skeptical type person, is when a mystery comes, I go, there must be a problem. I can't understand it. There must be a problem. There must be a problem with this if I can't understand it. That's kind of arrogant, right? <laughs> like that there couldn't be a solution that I'm not capable of knowing out there, you know? Well, if I'm not capable of knowing, it doesn't exist. Like, that's kind of arrogant, right? So we ought to expect some mystery, and in this area, there is mystery. If you want a fancy name to throw around so it sounds like you actually do have an answer, you can say it's compatibilism. 
that the two things are compatible in a way that we don't know, but God knows. And I'll just tell you from a personal testimony standpoint, I know that both are true in my own life. Like I remember before I was a Christian and I remember being lost. And I can tell you just from a personal testimony, that guy was totally responsible for his lostness. Okay. Like I have no problem thinking about myself before salvation and going like, yeah, I was totally responsible for my lostness, even though there was no way for me to get out of that lostness without God actually giving me spiritual life and pulling me out of it. But I was responsible. So I don't know how, I don't know the answer to it, but I know just experientially that he was responsible for his lostness. And and so were you before you came to Christ. You sinned because you wanted to sin and you were lost and you wanted to be, you know, didn't want to be found, wanted to be lost. And so it's something that we don't know the ultimate answer to. But we do know this in verse 23. It says that God, the purpose of election overall is for God's glory and our joy. It says in order to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but the Gentiles. The ultimate purpose of God's election is God's glory and the joy of his people. And that's something that he tells us really clearly. I got one more objection. Is this a lot to do on the 4th of July? Were you guys, did you come prepared? We need coffee. Okay, one more objection. I think you'll really track with this one. You might say, okay, maybe I'm with you on this, maybe not. But I have a question. And the question is, Won't believing in divine election make us less passionate about evangelism and missions? Have you guys ever wondered about that? That if God chooses those he's going to save, is that going to make me not care about evangelism and missions? There's certainly people out there that are proof of that, right? But does it have to be so that that would happen? Will believing in election make me less passionate about evangelism and missions because God's going to save who he's going to save anyway? Kind of idea. Now, we're going to see next time in Romans 10, that evangelism and missions are totally essential to God saving whoever he's going to save. Actually, Romans 10 says that specifically. How will they believe unless somebody tells them, you know? Like, it's very clear that this is the way God saves people. But I think ultimately the way that Paul answers that objection is not in his letter, but with his life, okay? So the man who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Romans 9, was not a guy that didn't care about evangelism and missions, Amen. Believing in election didn't make Paul care any less about the lost or evangelism. Remember how he started the chapter. I'm going to read it again. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself could be a curse cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Any of you have a passion for evangelism like that? Any of you? Any of you have unceasing anguish and sorrow? Any of you are like, I would be willing to be cut off from Christ for these people? No, this seems like a pretty strong heart for evangelism if I've ever seen it. Also, believing in election did not make Paul do less for evangelism and missions. It's been calculated that Paul traveled 15,500 miles in all of his missionary routes, not steps. For those of you who are like keeping track of your steps, not steps, miles, okay? He went 15,000. You're like, I did 15,000. Like, no, 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 you did steps. This is miles. Paul traveled 15,500 miles in his missions trips, 8,700 of them on foot. He walked 8,700 miles for evangelism. This is crazy. It's insane. And guys, he was beat up the whole way. 
right? Second Corinthians says this, he had frequent labors, imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times he received from the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. Three times he was beaten with rods, one stone, three times shipwrecked, a day and night adrift in the sea, frequent dangers on journeys in rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from his own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. <laughs> like, okay, we get the idea. It was rough. And you know what Paul says about this in 2 Timothy? He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they might obtain salvation. Isn't that wild? So in his mind is like, God is going to save some people out here. And I'm just going to continue to get beat up and shipwrecked and run over and whipped until I find every last one of them. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? The truth of election emboldens missions and evangelism. Because it tells us that no one's beyond the reach of the gospel. How many of you guys have people in your life that if it's up to their own free will, they're never coming to Jesus? How many of you guys have those? Very unlikely, right? You know, like this person's too wrapped up in their sin. This too, person's too, you know, atheistic. They're too hardened, whatever. The testament of this passage is like, that doesn't matter to God. God saves anyone with equal ease. You know, so... Keep praying, keep reaching out. You know, there's people in my life that I think about, you know, family members, older one. There's one that's very old, and he's an atheist, and he was very intellectual person. And, you know, if I didn't believe in these doctrines, I mean, I would think there's no hope, but certainly there's hope, right? Guys, there's no reason that knowing the power behind evangelism, which is divine election, there's no reason that knowing the power behind evangelism should decrease the passion for evangelism. Right? That doesn't make sense, right? Knowing the power behind evangelism, which is God's choice, sovereign choice, pulling people out of spiritual death, knowing the power of it should not decrease the passion for it. Didn't for Paul. So if it's doing it for you, there's something didn't click. You know, something didn't click right. Paul didn't think that talking about God's election would decrease the Roman church's passion for missions either, right? You know, you might say, well, if we talk about this in church, then people are going to have less desire for evangelism. Remember why Paul wrote this letter? He's trying to get support for a missions trip. And this is how he does it, right? He talks about God's election. He wanted The reason why is he wanted to show him what was going on on the mission field and what God was doing. And so there's no reason it should decrease our desire for evangelism and missions. And just in closing, guys, I want to remind you, like, what's Romans 9 here for? Romans 9 is here so that you'll be unshakably certain that God will keep his promise to you who believe in Jesus unshakably certain because it relies on his choice before the foundation of the world. It relies completely on his power, not yours. It's not ultimately up to your will or your running. It's up to God who has shown you mercy. It is not as though the word of God has failed. If God chose you in grace before creation, you can be absolutely certain that he's going to finish it in eternity. And that should provide for us, guys. I know that you guys probably have met some people that believe this, that we're really arrogant and difficult to deal with and like to fight with you. But what this should do, and what I've seen it do, is it both humbles you and gives you courage. It humbles you guys because your salvation is all God's doing from eternity past. You can't be like, oh, I was the smarter one. I was the humbler one. I was the more moral one. I was the more religious one. You know, I, I really check things out. I, I, you know, no, God saved me. It's his mercy. It should give you humility and it should give you courage, guys. Because nothing can stop him from finishing it. 
And if you're called to like evangelism in this area or you're called to go out on the mission field to the nations, you can have the kind of certainty that Paul does it, that God is going to God's going to grab people. He's got his elect out there. He will accomplish his purposes. The, the mission of the gospel will succeed because God empowers it. You might ask tonight one last thing. You might wonder, well, how do I know if I'm one of the elect, if God has chosen me for salvation? You're like, I don't know. Like, I wasn't there before the foundation of the world. I, you know, is there a mark? Can I look? You know, is there a book somewhere I could look it up? Guys, you can know that you're one of God's elect if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ. Just that simple. Remember when we did the chain? Those whom he's justified and they all went all the way back to, to predestined. Take a look at verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, have attained it? That is a righteousness by faith. But, the, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. But as it is, based on works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, Jesus, will not be put to shame. Guys, God's elect all have one thing in common. And that one thing in common is, is they found their righteousness before God, not in themselves, but in Jesus. In Jesus who has accomplished the law in their place. And so if you're trusting in Jesus Christ tonight, you are God's elect. You are God's chosen. And Paul was not hesitant to say that to, to Christians, people that trusted in Jesus. Like, you are God's chosen ones. You are his elect, those who trust in Jesus Christ. And so I just ask you, have you done that? Have every one of you done that? Have you, have you stopped trying to find joy in everything but God? <laughs> Joy's not there. You know, maybe you haven't lived long enough to know. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you can see that joy is not found in the world. Joy is not found ultimately in relationships, not found anywhere outside of God. God is the source of everlasting joy. And have you stopped trying to find your righteousness in yourself? It's not there. None of us are righteous enough to stand before God. Who's to return tonight on the clouds, as it says in, in Revelation, and you stood before him. You better not be relying on your own righteousness. It's a vapor. It's gone. You have to be re relying on Jesus' righteousness. And so have you done that? And if you have, if you found your joy and righteousness in him, we, we invite you to take the Lord's Supper, and then we invite you to get baptized in two weeks to celebrate that. And as you come to Christ, I, I don't know where I heard this, but I think it's very helpful. As you come to Christ, there's this arch, right? And the arch says on it, whoever so believes in Jesus will be saved, Right? That's the gospel arch. You see this arch says, whoever will believe. And you walk through it and you go, okay, I'll take that. And if you look back on the back of the arch, it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. If you're a Christian, you're looking at the back of the arch and you're going, oh, that's what happened. That's how I got here. If you're not in Jesus, it's very simple. <laughs> whoever believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. And then you'll find that God's been after you all along. Your whole story is going to make more, a lot more sense. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you even for the hard parts of your word that go totally against what we would naturally think, what we would assume of ourselves, that we assume of you, that we assume of reality. And Lord, we thank you for those parts because they remind us that you're God and we're not. And this is one of those texts, Lord, where we read it and we know where we stand. We know we're the creatures and you're the creator. We know that you're sovereign and we are not. And so we thank you for that. 
And we thank you, Lord, for the, the comfort that it brings to know that we didn't just stumble upon you. We didn't just find you ourselves, but you have been pursuing us and you have found us and you have drawn us to yourself and that you've loved us before we existed, that you set your heart on us at that time, that you delighted in us, even knowing all the sin that we'd have and all the failures we'd have and all the ways we'd run from you, that you set your delight on us. Jacob, I've loved. That you loved us. Thank you for that. And Lord, as we worship you, Lord, even in all the things we can't understand, we pray, Lord, that we would worship you with hearts that are full of joy, that you're the kind of God that gave your own son for us. And Jesus, that you are the kind of God that would become a man and give yourself for us. And Spirit, that you're the kind of God that would break down all of our defenses. That you wouldn't allow us to continue to run from you, but that you would draw us to yourself. And we thank you, one God, three persons. We thank you for the love that you've set upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.